Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 211. In this episode, we're talking about racial trauma with Pastor Juliette Liu. Pastor Lou is the co-pastor of Life on the Vine in the northwest suburbs of Chicago and serves as the chair of the board for Missio Alliance. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Grace Singling Ng, Reverend Daniel Parham, Reverend Dr. Christopher Porter, the Reverend Dr. Nathaniel Warren, and me, Dr. Madison Pierce. So, team members, what did you hear from Pastor Lou today? Yeah, I really appreciated uh, Juliet's um deep engagement with uh, racial trauma and her the way that she's been thinking not just about the the trauma itself um, and and what it looks like in, in different uh, cultural engagements and different racial engagements but also about um, means of being able to process and be being able to mitigate the effects of, of, of the trauma and just the deep thinking that she's been doing in that space um, it's yeah great conversation there were just a ton of wonderful gems in this interview. Um, just these really insightful and really helpful um, insights into racial trauma and drawn from her deep experience, not only thinking about this like theoretically, but also very, very pragmatically. Um, and so one of the things I'm gonna take from this is this wonderful line she has towards the end, which is, trauma responses internalized become culture. And that just resonated so much with my experience, my reading and my life, thinking about these kinds of things. I appreciated Pastor Lou's explanation of like the, the compounded trauma that, that many people of color uh, experience uh, as they're detangling. Uh, their own sense of navigating two cultures at the same time and how to embrace the fullness of their culture in an environment that may not either be familiar with it or dismissive of it um, in ways that creates uh, creates trauma uh, that I think she explains it more can be generational because you look at your prior generations by means of survival had to suppress elements of their own cultural, racial background. Uh, and that that sensibility of that can continue from generation to generation. And so for someone to unpack that work, uh, uh, it takes time um, and it takes a, a revealing some of the traumatic experiences that have led to it. Yeah, I really appreciated um, today's conversation with Pastor Lou and I really liked how she talked about trauma responses and how we internalize a lot of those responses in our bodies. And part of um, like healing from trauma is uh, practicing things like breathing um, and, you know, rocking back and forth, like soothing things to help release that trauma and um, to make our bodies know that we're in a safe place. So, yeah, I really liked how she uh, talked about that um, and also talked about um, some of the ways that uh, 
our trauma response um, is uh, like this internalized racism, how that that manifests itself as well. Um, so yeah, I really uh, resonated with with a lot of what she said and appreciated um, that she was able to, um, yeah, just give language to um, some of uh, our experiences. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really appreciated hearing so so much of what y'all have already shared. And then I, I, I mean, each of you, um, I mean, learning from her and then learning from each of you as you sort of narrated your questions and stuff. It was a sincere privilege for me to be able to be on this episode. So thanks to each of you also for your vulnerability today. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. As well, if you appreciate what we do here on The Two Cities, please consider joining our Patreon community to support our work and receive bonus content. Look for us on Patreon, follow us on X, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Pastor Juliet Liu. Juliet, thanks so much for, for coming on the pod. Uh, it's wonderful to have you uh, with us. Um, I was just wondering, can you lead us into the conversation by talking about uh, where, where you're at, uh, what you do, and uh, thinking then as we lead into this conversation on racial trauma, uh, how does that form your approach to racial trauma? Yeah, I um, so I serve as a pastor at a small church in the Midwest called Life on the Vine. And uh, I also um, am a spiritual director. Uh, I have been interested in the topic of trauma for a long time, largely just because of my own story and my own family's story um, and how I have seen trauma affect us over the generations, um, how I see it then as a pastor, like how I see it. Um, playing out in the way that I embody the role of pastor, uh, understand my calling, um, and then as well, the stories that I hear from the people to whom I minister. For me, because so because I am, you know, I'm a second generation uh, Chinese and Vietnamese American woman, um, racialized trauma, of course, then has been <laughs> a part of my story. Now, I didn't always have that language of like racial trauma. I didn't always have the language of uh, intergenerational trauma. I didn't always have the language of trauma itself. But as I have learned that language, uh, I've been able to make more sense of my story. And so, and then I bring that into the ministry that I do as a pastor. One of the things that always strikes me with uh, racial trauma is that it often looks so different for different people. Um, myself as an adopted uh, Asian, but adopted in Australia. It actually, I think, talking to, to other friends uh, who have grown up in different contexts, the, the racial trauma that we each ex have experienced looks quite different a lot of the time. Um, so can you just walk us through what some of those experiences of racial trauma look like across that spectrum? Yes, and I'm sure this has come up in previous episodes that you've done on trauma, but not only are you dealing with the way that traumatic events are different for people, like different traumatic events happen, um, but also the way that we respond to those traumatic events varies. So we're dealing with 
trauma that is varied in terms of the events that we live through, as well as the varied nature of uh, everyone responds to trauma in a different way, depending on your personality, depending also on how well resourced you are when the trauma event happens. Right. So there's like the distinction between the trauma events, the things that happen, the circumstances, um, and then also the trauma response, which is going to depend on who that person is, as well as how resourced they are, how well connected are they? Do they have a supportive family? Do they have strong friendships? Do they have a community of support? Um, do they have economic means to respond to that trauma? Do they have access to healthcare, to mental health professionals? All of those things also affect the nature in which we respond to a traumatic event and then take on a trauma response. So the things that happen to people and particularly to um, like black indigenous people of color, although <laughs> we can also get into like how racial trauma affects the dominant race as well. Um, but if we're sort of looking primarily at how racial trauma lands on, um, you know, Black, Indigenous people of color, then, um, you know, you have your, in terms of your events, you have your, you know, more obvious, like, instances of, like, blatant person-to-person -person interactions or discrimination or acts of violence. Um, for example, like, I grew up in the in the Midwest, where uh, I think the state I grew up in had like a 2% population of Asian Americans. Um, so not what we would call a diverse setting. Uh, and so what I experienced growing up is that, you know, my Chinese and Vietnamese family cultures are very much exoticized and, and ridiculed. Um, and so then I had interactions with people at school or on playgrounds where um, you know, there's ching chonging, right? Like the people um, ridiculing the sound of our language, um, comments that were thrown at me, you know, go back to where you came from, even though I was, I was born in Texas. <laughs> I was like, I guess I can go back to Texas. Um, uh, you know, statements like you don't belong here, the ethnic slurs, um, you know, all of all of those things we kind of see, like, a resurgence of those things in the past few years, right, towards Asian Americans. Um, so those are things I experienced. And, um, and then, you know, when you think about, uh, like, police violence, and um, especially directed towards communities of color, like those more, those are sort of the more blatant, like person to person interactions of discrimination and violence that we could identify as racial trauma. Um, but also, there are there's another sort of experience that many people of color have, which is like microaggressions. Um, I don't know if that those have come up on your previous episodes, but you know, the microaggressions where it's, it's sort of the pervasive, repetitive, um, indirect, subtle, sometimes even unintentional discriminations that we experienced as marginalized people. Um, so oftentimes we experience these when, um, if, if people of color are situated within a white, a, a predominantly white context, that's where we would experience microaggressions. Um, each, each instance is not particularly dramatic. You know, it's the kind of story where if you told someone, they could easily discount it, but it's more about the cumulative effect of those and how they reside in our bodies 
um, as we sort of live surrounded by these microaggressions on a daily basis. And then you can get into like systemic or institutional racism, right? So the, the kind of racism where it's not a person who necessarily has bad feelings in their heart about someone because of their, the color of their skin, but it's just that as an institution, um, that has been shaped by, by whiteness, that has been shaped by an assumption that white Western culture is, um, better than others, uh, and that that form of better can be, you know, better theology, right? This is where the good theology comes from, is this part of the world from from theologians that look like this. Or um, it could just be like the way that our understanding of spiritual maturity is shaped by our culture, right? So like things like maturity looks like communicating in this way. Um, and then we sort of attach a spiritual maturity understanding to that. So that then those who don't act in that way, we consider immature or not worthy of leadership. Um, but those things get built into a system. They get built into an organization. They get built into an institution or a school. And then living within that system takes its toll on the people within it. And so that's another form of racial trauma. And then we could also get into this, but... There's also the experience of intergenerational trauma, which is uh, an intriguing concept that is currently being researched. But it's the ways that there's a the effect of how our previous generations, our ancestors, have experienced in themselves racial trauma and how that gets passed off to future generations. Studies say up to three to four generations later, we see the effects of that racialized trauma that's then been passed on intergenerationally. Thank you, Julia, for that um, really insightful, multifaceted sort of approach to um, racial trauma, generational trauma, all the pieces of it from the individual to more broader. Um, if I can follow up with the last um, approach that you took, which is the generational trauma, this is a topic that we've been touching on more or less in previous episodes. And um, a few episodes ago, um, with the theologian in England, we talked about the epigenetic process of methylation, which actually changes genetics to so that. Um, there's a, a actual physical manifestation of the trauma generations later you set up the um so i came across this um i'm doing a bunch of reading in psychology and i came across this passage in a, a really well-known uh psychologist named martin seligman he he writes in a book called flourish um strong, strong biological underpinnings uh predispose some of us to sadness anxiety and anger Therapists can modify these emotions, but only within limits. It is likely that depression, anxiety, and anger come from um, heritable personality traits that can only be ameliorated, not wholly eliminated. And so, I, my my question is, I'm I'm wanting to get so your take on the racial piece of this generational trauma that we've been talking about. But specifically with regards to this, it seems like the deck is stacked against us who 
come from uh, uh, traditions or um, uh, generations of trauma. So my own experience being um, the my family being genocide survivors. Um, and it seems like the deck is stacked against us not only on a biological level, but then also at a social level, because so many of us who immigrate to the U.S., for example, will not only have the trauma from the event that pushed us to be dispossessed in the first place, but then secondly, to be um, in a uh, position to have to fight for recognition within that new space. Um, and so, which leads to um, economic oppression, political oppression, as you talked about, um, the systems, right? And just really seems like with regards to race and trauma, the whole system, it just doubles down and is just a, a very, what's, how do we, how do we express it? Um, there's a very bleak picture of what it means to be, um, non-white, especially in the West, um, but more specifically in the, in the U.S., for example. To be honest, Nathaniel, when I, uh, when I first started learning about intergenerational trauma, it was too much for me because of the bleakness that can really come over you as I, you know, my reaction was like, are you kidding? Like, I'm trying to just process the trauma I've experienced in my own life. <laughs> and now, now I feel like there's just layer upon layer upon layer of trauma that I didn't even myself experience, but somehow is, has been passed down to me. And there was a way that like, it was, there was actually a way that when I first heard it, it was also like a light bulb. Like it, it was helping me make sense of my own experience as well. Um, it was helping me to understand, like, there are some responses I carry in my body that maybe don't really make sense. But when you put it in, into this broader framework of what have my ancestors experienced that was also passed on to me, then it, it does actually, it, it sort of fills in the picture in really helpful ways. And I felt very overwhelmed. Like there, there can't possibly be hope. Um, so I do, I, what I do think that the really cool thing, <laughs> I guess use the word cool to describe intergenerational trauma is it really then pushes us to explore how healing does not have to come about through the verbal processing of our trauma, but actually through this really mysterious, like physical healing. Um, because the, that trauma that we have been passed down intergenerationally, it's not in our thoughts. It's in our bodies. And so the healing then comes through bodily bodily means, bodily methods, um, which is, um, I'm sure a theme that has come up already for you guys. But you know, one of the most fascinating things about, about trauma and tra trauma healing is how physical it is. Um, so this applies, you know, not just to racial trauma, but more broadly to, to trauma in, of any kind. Um, I think the what I, I would say two of the goals of healing from trauma are to get your body to a place where your body is able to recognize the trauma is over and that this trauma story is not the only story that can play out. There are different pathways. There are different stories available to me. 
Um, because in some ways, trauma, what trauma response is, it's your body getting stuck on a loop, right? It's like the narrative, uh, even though around you, the event is over, your body is reacting as though it's still playing. And so your body gets stuck in this loop of like, trauma, 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 I have to keep reacting in this way. I have to keep depending on these survival mechanisms, I have to keep um, and, and very much like our, our, our systems get overactivated. Um, right, it's that like fight response, or they get underactivated, right, the, the, um, the response where we just sort of collapse. Um, and so, so one of the ways that we can reach that place of like, understanding in our bodies that the trauma is over, is actually just learning to regulate our bodies and experience our bodies um, coming to a place of of peace. Um, I I am I'm all about like trauma treatments that do depend on verbal processing, but sometimes either a person's trauma response is so extreme and they're still so present to it that a verbal processing is not not what they're ready for. Um, and then also there are situations again where we we're talking about intergenerational trauma where we didn't we we don't even have something to verbally process because it didn't happen to us but there's some way that our bodies have been wired to keep responding to a trauma that our our ancestors respond had to respond to and so the physical practices things like you know becoming aware of our breath things like body scans that help us just attune to what's going on in our bodies. Um, motions like, uh, you know, Resma Menekum talks about like different soothing motions. So even like sometimes I, I invite people to like rock back and forth with me if we are praying together to connect themselves to a sense of safety and soothing and peace. But learning to bring our bodies to that place of calm, um, to that, that window of not underactivated, but activated enough and not overactivated, but right, like a good stable place. Those things help our body realize that the trauma is over. The story is over. I can, I can stop responding as though it's still going on because it's over. It's not happening right now. Thanks so much, Juliet. Um, I really appreciate your engagement in this space and thinking about the, the ways that, um, intergenerational trauma and, and trauma in, um, and racial trauma in general can be mitigated, uh, at least, um, for those who are experiencing it at the time. I'm wondering, uh, and also to pick up on Nate's, um, uh, query about, um, intergenerational epigenetic trauma, um, it seems, strikes me that um, in our br more broadly interconnected world, we end up sometimes in places where racial trauma um, can either fit at odds or uh, alongside the uh, other traumatic cultural or um, even um, reparative cultural experiences that people have on a daily basis. Uh, so I guess for an example, I'm an Australian. I travel to the US for SBL every year. And I 
I experience a different sort of racialization in the US than I do in Australia. Um, for a whole bunch of reasons, I get asked for towels at hotels versus in Australia, I get a very different sort of response, such as um, people in the street presuming I am Japanese and therefore trying to speak Japanese to me um, versus in the States, people presume I'm Mexican or South American. I'm wondering if you could comment on on those sorts of environments. You know, previously, um, the the white hegemony has been very, uh, very much the what we've been interacting with on on a on a majority basis, and it's been very um, uniform. Uh, I guess the the my childhood was Australian whiteness was of one specific kind, and I from my experiences in the US talking with friends in the States, um, American whiteness was of like fairly much one specific kind because people didn't move around a huge amount. They uh, engaged in the same sort of um, cultural and um, locale-based groups. Um, I know Daniel in the past has been commenting on the fact that he's just moved from LA to the Midwest and what a culture shock that is. Um, whereas those sorts of moves seem to happen more, more commonly now. Um, just interested in your experience there and, and, and how that's worked out. You said you moved from Texas up to um, the Midwest as well. Well, to be honest, I, I haven't lived in that many different places. I, I was born in Texas. Um, I grew up largely, though, in different places within the Midwest and largely within communities where the Asian American population and and probably the population of any, you know, um, the black population, the Latino population were very low, like under, under 10%, maybe, I mean, maybe 10%, like all together, like all combined. Um, and so that, that sort of Midwestern American white experience is mostly what I know. I have not, I mean, <laughs> I, as I have interacted with Asian Americans from other parts of the country, I do see differences. I do think, cause I do think it is in relation to, um, to like the numbers. So, so I have, you know, cousins and friends who grew up in California in places where actually Asian Americans are the majority. And if you, if you even just think about that, like, what would it be like? to grow up as an Asian American in Nebraska, which is where I grew up, where 2% of the population is Asian American. I'm in my school, you know, there's under, I can count the number of Asian American students on one hand, and two of them are my sisters, right? Like I'm, I'm related to most of them, which is what everyone assumed anyway. <laughs> and then, uh, but then, you know, right, take that experience versus an Asian American who's growing up in one of the regions in California where they are it's majority Asian American and they are surrounded by, right. You can go to school and be surrounded by people who look like you and you can go to the mall and there are advertisements reaching out to you, right. You're, you're someone that's important to them. Um, you can, you know, how, how vastly different that experience would be as an Asian American. So there's like a lot of variation there. Um, I also find that like 
on the East Coast because like East Coast communications more direct, like a little bit more blunt than like Midwestern communication where it's really important to us to be nice, you know, like polite and nice. And so when I meet Asian Americans from the East Coast, they are, um, they're just like, they're more, they're more confident. They speak their minds. They're more outspoken, I guess is what I would say. When I meet Asians from the um, West Coast, they um, are really happy. <laughs> they walk, they like walk into a room with a smile. If you watch a Midwestern Asian American walk into a room, oftentimes they don't talk. They are looking around. They're like reading the room. They're trying to get a feel for who is here. Um, they don't enter with tons of confidence. Now these are like giant generalizations, but um, just things I've noticed in terms of like the the different ways that we are racialized differently depending on what part of the country we grew up in and who who is in that population and how um, how included we were in the broader culture. You know, where this connects to racial trauma is that depending on what your experience was and how you were racialized because of where you grew up, you will have different trauma responses, right? I, I think that when I think about like the people I meet with who are from the West Coast and who are Asian American, for example, primarily they are exploring um, the difficulties that arose, the challenges that arose in their lives um, within their own families because there was this clash of cultures of like, um, like their, their family's Eastern culture clashing with the Western culture that they were growing up in. But there's not necessarily the processing of trauma of like, I didn't belong. Um, I was ridiculed. I was exoticized because that wasn't at maybe as much of their experience growing up surrounded by a community that might have been 40, 50, 60% Asian American. Whereas if you're listening for racial trauma experiences in the lives of Midwestern um, Asian Americans, then their experience is going to be more, their racial trauma is more around um, that sense of rejection and isolation um, and, and the trauma of like having to assimilate, right? Like having, having yourself erased because you had to fit in for survival. That that's really that's really fascinating. So from my own perspective, and this is going to draw back to your comments about microaggression, is I went to high school with no other Armenian Americans around, but majority Mexican Americans, but never really felt like an outsider um, in that in that context. Um, it took going to a predominantly white university for me to feel like an out for me to feel like an outsider and in that context there was just microaggression after microaggression after microaggression um for a number a number of reasons the first is um i do have lighter skin and most uh caucasian people think at first glance that i'm like them and so say things thinking that it's in sort of the confidence of of um, the conversation, which, and say things that are actually really hurtful. Also, going to university as a Middle Eastern individual during 9-11, and all the, like, the microaggressions sort of came out of comments after that, of being a person who I, uh, 
identifies as a Middle Eastern person. Um, and so everything came out after that. And even at that time in the world, not understanding truly what the geopolitical um, interrelationship between Middle East and America was, still pretty clueless about a number of those um, things, at least in the popular imagination. And so it took, interestingly, uh, in, in a Mexican-American context, feeling very at home. But coming to a, a predominantly uh, white context is where I felt and have experienced the most amount of microaggressions just about, um, yeah, just out of ignorance of who I am and the context and cultural context from which I come. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Nay, I, I'm really glad that you had that experience surrounded by Mexican Americans. I, I, I do think that there can be like a shared um, camaraderie and connection between groups when they both have experienced that sense of marginalization. Um, although sometimes that's not the case, right? Like sometimes, oftentimes marginalized communities are pitted against each other um, and have learned that they have to fight for space, fight for resources, fight for whatever. Um, so I'm really glad that you had a really positive experience surrounded by other minorities. Um, but yeah, it but then for you to experience the microaggressions when you went to, as you move towards um, more white spaces, that's, that's really intriguing. And it reminds me of, um, uh, I, I read this from Chanika Walker Barnes, and I don't know if she took it from someone else, but she says, you know, when, when whiteness or when white supremacy encounters difference it does it has like one of four moves um whiteness either commodifies it exterminates it demonizes or it assimilates those are sort of the four strategies um that white supremacy has learned when it encounters difference so like commodification is like exploiting like how can we Basically, how can we benefit from this difference, which I would include in that, like tokenizing. Um, tokenizing is like, we value that you're different because it's going to somehow be of benefit to us. So you're allowed to be our token, whatever, because it makes us look good. Um, so that's like another form of commodification. And then there's um, extermination, which is, you know, on a historical level, we see that like the indigenous population being wiped out. Um, but how do we, how do we encounter this difference or how do we deal with this? It's by just wiping them off. Um, and then demonization is where we make a group dangerous, right? Like we say, they're the, they're the, they're the ones responsible for our problems or they're just innately evil. And so they're a threat to us. Um, and then there's like assimilation, which is we're okay with you being here as long as you become like us, right? As long as you can erase who you are, then we're fine with you being here, which is so, sort of like a form of extermination. It's just that the doing away with them happens uh, through a specific strategy. Um, but I mean, I, I do, that has that has been true in my own experience, right? Like that's, you. those are like four strategies you can name and you can look at all the historical 
ways that that has been true. But also my personal experience has been, I've experienced those reactions, right? How, Juliet, like, how am I going to commodify you? How is your Asian Americanness something that can benefit me and make our institution look good? Or Juliet, like, we're okay with you being here, but don't like, don't come up with different ideas. <laughs> like just, if you think the way we think, then that's great. And if you think the way we think, uh, we'll even promote you, right? Like, because again, that makes us look good. I guess that's tokenization, but. Yeah, so thank you so much, Juliet, for talking about um, the different experiences of Asian Americans in different regions of the United States. Um, yeah, I think it's so true that um, depending on where we live, um, it is a really different experience. Um, yeah, so I'm second generation Filipino American, and I grew up in SoCal. Um, my neighborhood was predominantly a white neighborhood, and I went to a predominantly white school. But then um, I went to church in LA, which was a predominantly Filipino church. So it was interesting even going between those two spaces. Um, and then um, now I live in Oxnard, which is uh, predominantly Hispanic, but has um, a pretty good Filipino population around here. And how much more I feel um, kind of like seen and understood in my current context compared to where I grew up, um, even just having like a local Filipino supermarket opening up recently was just like very, very exciting to have. Um, yeah, but something um, I am interested in asking you about um, how racial trauma, um, you're talking about how a lot of times uh, we internalize it in, in our bodies. Um, and I appreciate the practices that you had mentioned of, um, yeah, trying to figure out how or practicing the ways of how we can, um, like, have our bodies come to uh, a, just like a stable state. Um, and then a a question I had is how does racial trauma um, relate also to like the internalized racism um, that often as we as people of color have in the way that we view ourselves as like inferior um, to, yeah, the majority population? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, yeah. I mean, I'd love to hear your experience, Grace. I, uh, you know, I'll just share as part of an answer, people of color are not immune to white supremacy themselves. Right? So many communities, many individuals have internalized it, have eaten the same thing and digested it. And then it's become a cultural value for them. It's like the, the closer you can be to whiteness, the better. Um, so I, I also think that's a trauma response. Right. That's, that's like a learned coping mechanism is in a world that is set up to, um, to reward whiteness and then the opposite of reward non-whiteness. Um, then a trauma response from living in that world is learning to accommodate to assimilate, to internalize that so that our goal is to become as white as we can, right? To become like white adjacent. I don't know if that's um, a term that has been brought up, but um, so Sheila Wise Rowe talks about in her book, Healing Racial Trauma, she talks about like, often we're familiar with like the fight or flight response when it comes to trauma, 
So either we, you know, we gear up and we, we fight or we, or we run away. And those are, um, you know, bodily responses and like bodily postures we can hold. Um, Sheila Wisero like sort of, um, tries to give some complexity to that. So she talks about the fawning response, right? Fight, flight, or fawn. And fawning is where instead of addressing the conflict, we appease the powers that be by taking on their behaviors in the hopes that we can protect ourselves. This is connected to like assimilation as well, but it's, it's more than assimilation. It's like, it's sort of like the trauma response is learning how to, um, to become cozy with the powers that be because we know that that will ultimately provide safety for us. Um, my family, my mother's side of the family is Vietnamese. When Vietnam was colonized by the French, the uh, the French colonizers didn't bother to learn the language in Vietnam. It was just beneath them. They were like, we don't need to learn the language, even though we're taking over this land. What they did instead was they hired Vietnamese people who would learn French, and then they put them in charge. And if you were one of those Vietnamese people who was able to learn French, and then who was deemed worthy of um, being given leadership, over your people, you, you were, you know, you were pretty well off. Um, and that was actually like, if you, if you go back generations of my family, that's the story of my mother's family is they, they realized if we can learn French, if we can um, become friends, basically with the French colonizers, then our family will be safe. And so that's what they learned how to do. And I have learned in my life, I think that is a trauma response that has been passed on to me um, over the generations. My, my response to trauma, and especially racial trauma, has been, how can I make myself safe by making myself indispensable or praiseworthy to the people in charge? Um, and then what that gets attached to then is these internalized beliefs that because what I am is not good enough. Um, and so, but I don't even think it has to be attached to those beliefs of like good enough. I think just the survival response of better or worse, does it matter? Like if I'm like them, then I'm safe. I, I think that's where the internalized racism begins. It, it begins from a quest for safety. It begins as a response to I'm, I'm threatened and in order to guarantee my own safety and wellness, I have to do this. But then that gets passed on as because this this way of being, this white way of being is, is better. And then our way of being is bad. And I think that you see that in a lot of the countries that were colonized. You see that internalized um, racism that gets passed on and then it becomes culture. Right, like trauma responses when they're collective and then they get handed down to the next generation, they don't even get identified as trauma responses anymore. We just call them culture. Oh, that is so good. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you see that story playing out in your family's life? 
Because the Philippines also, that history. Totally. Yeah. It's very similar. Yeah. The colonization. Yeah. yeah the fact that, you know, English is taught in schools. And um, if you know English, like that is really like the way up, I guess, like even socioeconomically, like, yeah, I definitely see that as well. And then just seeing ourselves as inferior to like white people, I think that is definitely an internalized trauma response. Thanks so much, Julia and Grace. Um, I think one of the interesting things for me, and 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 in part because I I'm still learning this in in many ways uh, as an adoptee, I have a very different racial response. I think sometimes because I've grown up effectively kind of white. Um, so when I'm when I do get those microaggressions or I get the the even more major aggressions, I respond like a white guy, um, and get and you know um, it's a very different sort of um, of uh, yeah it's a very different sort of response that you know I don't have the culturated response and yet somewhere in there there is still the epigenetics of being um, a minoritized. Um, and, and racially traumatized person. So thanks so much for expressing that and, and let me see those insights. I would like to come back to kind of the compounded like institutional trauma. And I, I think about that from the context of, for, for many people of color who have uh, lived under the kind of cultural veins of majority white institutions, the word institutional, structural, uh, racism, or racialized trauma comes with a strong defense. And I, I, I want to know for, from your perspective, how much of that has compounded the trauma of institutions uh, fortifying their history of racialization by their defensiveness towards uh, marginalized individuals or uh, who have experienced that historically? I, th I think about that from the context of even coming from the West Coast, where uh, a lot of times there's unspoken uh, history of uh, racism against Asian Americans in the height of World War II and uh, internment camps and uh, workforce discrimination that, that happened for decades um, that was actually supported by the state and supported by the government. Uh, and then lean into uh, some of the educational experiences as well, uh, the stratified um, alignment with desegregation and the rise of the Christian institution uh, along along those lines and um, Christian institutions predominantly being white uh, along the lines of desegregation and how that doesn't just seem coincidental. Uh, and so for, for moments like that, how, how do you process, uh, or at least how have you seen uh, individuals who are non-white coming into spaces that they have been both reared in or educated in and also have been inflicted upon the trauma um, of those same institutions not admitting that many of their practices were birthed out of racialization. So has the unwillingness to name that history or to, or to even engage in like, um, like receiving people's stories today about like, this is what it's like for me to be here in this institution. Like, has that compounded people's trauma? Absolutely. Like that is, um, 
absolutely that compounds the trauma. Um, you know, there's this interesting thing uh, in trauma studies where if, you know, part, part of my definition of trauma is that um, the trauma response happens and to what degree it happens largely depends on how resourced we are at the time. Because the same event can happen to two people. And if one of them has no economic resources, has no community around them, does not receive a response of like empathy and understanding after it happens, um, then they, they react in a very different way than someone who has all of those things. Did I say that the right way? Am I keeping them separate? Okay. Um, and when I think about, and, and so, you know, one, one really helpful thing to know about trauma is like, we live in a, we live in a traumatic world. We live in a world like you're not going to be able to avoid trauma. We just live in a world that is constantly producing traumatic events. Um, and so the goal just can't always be like avoid trauma. You know, I think about this with my kids. Like I wish that my goal could be to just keep them safe from any form of trauma, but that, I haven't been able to do that so far. If you figure out the secret to that, man, let me know. Um, so it it doesn't make sense for us to just try to avoid trauma. We have to know like when someone experiences a traumatic event, one of the one of the primary things that helps is if they if they are listened to and heard in a in an empathetic way, um, there's like a 24 hour window, I think is what I've read. If they are or if they are heard and received with empathy within this 24-hour window, they are much less likely to store that experience as trauma in their bodies. So then you think about like the total opposite happening in these institutions where people are coming forward, students are coming forward, faculty are coming forward to say, hey, I love this institution and I've been I've been nurtured by this institution in some ways, but I also have to be honest about my experience here as a person of color, as a minority, and the ways that I've been hurt. And then you have institutions doing the absolute opposite of what a good trauma response is, which is they're saying, we can't believe you. They're saying, you are the one stirring up trouble. They're saying, you are being divisive by bringing this up. They're saying, this is not that serious. You need to get over it. We're not that kind of institution. So then, of course, if that's the response, if that's if they're receiving, if the person coming forward is receiving the exact opposite of what they need to, to receive, then yes, of course, that trauma is being compounded. I guess bringing in an institution of the church, you know, and maybe I'll get fired from the church too. Here we go. Um <laughs> Uh, how I, I want to come back to some of the own internalized elements of of white supremacy um, or white normativity, you know, the, the layers of it. How have you seen that compounded in the traumas of expressed in the church? I, I mean, my example would be that I went to a predominant at that time a predominantly white evangelical institution having come from a predominantly African-American Pentecostal background, uh, the convergence of those cultures felt virtually non-existent at that time. And and so the I came away 
many times feeling that I needed to critique my background because uh, nothing was expressed of commendation. Only what was expressed at those moments was either uh, lack of knowledge or some subtle suspicion. Uh, and so it took it took me a couple years to actually weigh that out. And, uh, and what I found myself doing is finding myself in moments of critiquing the very place that God had like spiritually formed me in as if it was all wrong at, at one point because I didn't see it celebrated or admonished uh, in beautiful ways. And how much of that, like, you know, h- how much of that have you seen in the compounded trauma that's expressed within the church, particularly, I think, the Western church? Uh, case in point being, uh, even thinking about academia and, and theology and how that informs us, uh, example being, like, I didn't know Augustine was African, right? Because the way that he was portrayed, I, I could have never imagined that one of the greatest theologians of our time, uh, our history, was actually African. <laughs> and so the nature of uh, even that perception of whiteness in that in that space didn't give give much example for me to go back to my church and actually both admonish the expression of my faith, but then also the history of my faith of which my people were included in. And so how have you seen that expressed? Because uh, I feel like there's a lot of detangling that comes from that, especially if you've been educated theologically uh, under spaces that um, contextually are not your culture uh, or have your racialized background. Yeah, I have encountered that a lot. And and I myself, you know, I most of my theological education has been at primarily white institutions. Um, and so that's definitely something I've experienced. I remember as a seminary student um, that um, one of the one of the challenges I heard voiced by um, a black classmate of mine was that black churches on the south side of Chicago were sending their um, sending their leaders to white institutions to be educated to white seminary institutions to be educated, and then none of them were coming back because what happened was in seminary they were taught that everything well not i mean i won't say everything but they were they were taught to be suspicious of their own context because that context didn't produce you know quote the right kind of theology or the right kind of ecclesiology um and so then by the time they graduated from seminary they didn't want to pastor a black church anymore um and I I learned from their conversations because what what they were saying was you know churches cannot keep sending um, their black leaders to white institutions completely unsupported um, like they have to be still connected to the black context so that so that the leaders in their black context can can challenge. <laughs> the suspicion that they are learning at their white institution about their context. Um, and it was, um, you know, I appreciate that conversation. I still, I still remember it because, because it's so insidious in our educational institutions um, that the right kind of theology comes out of these contexts. And if anything, any other kind of theology gets its own label, 
right? Like black liberation theology or Asian American theology, but we don't call theology one and theology two Western theology. We just call, we just call that class theology one and theology two. Um, and I think that that is right. That like part of what makes white normativity or white supremacy or whatever you want to call it so insidious is that we, it just doesn't get named it, because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't need its own label. But if I do theology, then it's Asian American feminist theology, right? But like, but if my friend, you know, Matt, who, who is a white male does theology, then it's just theology. Um, so yeah, then does that get carried over into the church? Yeah. I I would say personally too, I'm still on a journey of um, you know, decolonizing. I know that's sort of a buzzword these days, but but because I have been educated in largely white institutions, um, my understanding of God, my images for God, um, all all come from that place of white Western theology. Um, and for me to heal, for me to pursue my own racial healing, for me to be decolonized, I need imagery and stories and people that come from contexts outside of that. I also think this is true for white people. If you had a passage of scripture to go meditate on as a person of color, to rock back and forth with, um, to, to meditate with, um, wh- where would you go? Or where would you tell other people to like, hey, go, um, go sit with this piece of scripture? Do you have a, a, some place to, that you would send us, send them? So one I would say is the woman who comes to Jesus with the, you know, the years of hemorrhaging the woman with the blood issues. And um, I actually pull this again from Sheila Wise Rowe in her book. She, she pulls this, this passage up to describe, uh, to give a visual for what it is like to grow up in a world as a marginalized person, as a person of color, um, to grow up in a, in a world that is um, normalized whiteness. Um, and the the ways that we have been hemorrhaging for years. Like this is like a picture of our trauma. That the the little microaggressions or the larger instances of violence that for years we have been hemorrhaging. And Jesus not only heals this woman. Um, but he, he pulls her into the center of the group. Like she would have been fine just being healed without any, any attention, but Jesus doesn't let that happen. He's like, it's not enough, right. For me just to heal you. I want you to be seen. And so he pulls her to the center. And I think that's a really beautiful picture to, to pray and to, to rock right to rock with to sway with is um are you that woman are you that hemorrhaging woman where where are you bleeding what are your wounds 
And what is Jesus doing for you? What does Jesus want to do for you? Um, the other story that I come back to often for myself is, um, it's just, it's the story of Moses and his, um, you know, his hesitation, um, his like God, God's like, Moses, I want you to come and be a part of like liberating your people. And he's like, who me? No way. Like, I just, I'm not the right person. And there's so much like self-doubt that I resonate with there. Um, but God persists. And when Moses is finally able to, um, to say yes to God, it's about so much more than what God is doing in Moses's life. Like Moses then returns to his people and he tells them, God has seen your suffering and he will come deliver you. Right? Like Moses's yes to God's healing in his individual life leads to the liberation of his whole people. And so what I love about that is like for any of us who like for me, like for cultural reasons, I was taught that I was not allowed to really take up space or to be a part of the picture. And this is like a message I heard from both my own family's culture as a woman, but then also as a person who was not white in a white world, you're not really allowed to be a part of this picture. And so I tend to struggle with um, timidity. And I, I and self doubt, but but if but a yes to God and a yes to God's healing in my life is not just about me; it's about a whole people being freed and delivered. That's that's what when you follow your own journey of healing, it's not just for you; it's for the world. Juliet, thank you so much for all that you've shared here. We really appreciate the opportunity to learn from you and appreciate your vulnerability in this space. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. 